Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court, the law, and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29, and that is 50% off. As a member, you will get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like Slow Burn and Political Gap Fest. Slate's podcasts cover major news events from elections to social issues to historic Supreme Court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, and decode deep cultural mysteries. If we've become a part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash amicus plus to access all of Slate's content and to support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash amicus plus. And just by way of a case in point, Plus members can right now access an extra bonus episode from Amicus. It's a conversation that I had with one of my favorite court watchers, Jessica Levinson, taped live in Los Angeles this past weekend. And here's a taste of that conversation. Could you talk to us again about the special relationship between women and the law? I think it's something we're sitting in now at this moment. And if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said kind of some version of what I said at Whole Women's Health at that argument in 2016, which is we are so close to complete equality. Look at us, you know, we're 50% of every law school class and we're, you know, kind of clawing our way into the highest echelons at law firms and at law schools. And look at all the women deans of law schools in the last 10 years. I mean, it's breathtaking. And so I just had that sense that we were inching up on the forever times and clearly we're not. And, you know, part of the answer, I think, Jessica, is it's always been a pendulum, right? Every single major civil rights movement in this country, and I would say worldwide, is one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step sideways. And we happen to be, I think, in the epicenter of one of those, not just on gender, but on race and on LGBTQ rights. You know, things that seemed certain, 5, 10, 15 years ago are really, really, I think, destabilized. So part of it is I think we're, we're in a pendulum swing, but part of it is this really complicated question, which is, and it's sort of the answer to why the book is pink, because you may have noticed it's pink and that my family is wearing pink in the front row. And I think the book is pink because I've always said, uh, you know, the law is very much a pink book, that was written by men for men. And that the framers and the drafters of statutes and every single person that controlled every aspect of a woman's life for centuries, for millennia, were men. And women had to fight their way in to the doctrine. They had to fight their way into the Constitution, right? That was a centuries-long process. And I think what I wanted to say, and this is a sort of sideways answer, is that I think women, people of color, Native Americans, LGBTQ Americans, all understand that it is an absolute double-edged sword, that the same 
legal processes and systems that were used to criminalize your behavior, to diminish you, to take away power and freedom for centuries are now the processes that make us free and equal and give us dignity and autonomy. And I think in our memories, we know that. And so this goes a little bit to the sort of, I think, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, dualism that we move through the world as, as two creatures, one the beneficiary of, of American uh, uh, exceptionalism and also the <laughs> recipient of uh, a long, long legal tradition that says, you're nothing. And I think that women are really aware of that. And so maybe the best evidence I have of that is that post-Dobbs, I think it was women and I know you were one of them and I was one of them on TV saying, this isn't just about abortion. This is about miscarriages. This is about birth control. This is about pregnancy. This is about how we raise our children. And if they can put us in jail for terminating a pregnancy, then, you know, my DNC that I had after a miscarriage is also on the table. And I think that's just familiar. And maybe the last thing I would say is that I think, when Justice Alito writes in his opinion that, you know, if you go back to Sir Matthew Hale, beloved Burn witch some burner, witches. Yeah, beloved witch burner of um, British history, and you're citing the views of people from centuries back, they thought women were either property or children. It wasn't just Matthew Hale. That was 50 years ago when you couldn't have a credit card. When I teach marital property, we talk about that. And my students, luckily in some ways and unluckily in others, it doesn't compute to them that that's their grandparents or if they're, if they have much older parents, then um, because it feels like the beginning of your book, right? It feels like, but we've always had equal rights. They, because my students walk into a room and expect that in a room of power, there will probably be 50% women. And I think part of what we're living in now is that that's not a fait accompli. And I, there's another through line in the book. Um, it's a chant. I think I remember the first time I heard lock her up and it was completely chilling. And you talk about it in the book and it's the first time I remember it, it was then candidate Trump talking about then candidate Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election and it was weaponizing the law. And it becomes a metaphor throughout the book. Can you talk about how this locker up chant is, one, a metaphor in the book, but two, how it really is, I think, a through line through a lot of the stories? I think that the move from Iron My Shirts, originally directed at Hillary Clinton, to lock her up, we missed how pernicious that move was. We thought they were both kind of funny. Not we. I, did, I mean, n nobody here thought it was funny, but I think it was both seen as kind of the excessive zeal of a sexist crowd. But of course, Iron My Shirts is just kind of jerky. Lock Her Up is really threatening. And I think that when Lock Her Up was not just directed at Hillary Clinton. I think I note in the book, at some point it was directed at Nancy Pelosi. It was directed at AOC after Christine Blasey Ford testified against Judge Kavanaugh. The crowds were chanting, lock her up. And that's really different. That's using the machinery of the law 
to incarcerate a woman, not ever for anything specific other than, what, saying unpopular things? I guess in Hillary Clinton's case, you know, for using that home server, uh, which seems fairly benign in light of, you know, selling nuclear secrets. But I think that Lock Her Up went from being the sort of zeitgeist of this is an inconvenient woman who doesn't know her place. How dare she run for president? Let's put her in jail. And it wasn't just the chanting. It was Donald Trump in a debate talking about having his attorney general investigate Hillary Clinton. And so once you're talking about locking women up as a sort of rhetorical campaign matter, and then it's starting to infiltrate every rally about every woman who is just kind of daring to run for office. And then, as you say, when the book ends, I mean, within weeks of, of the book shipping, women were being locked up in Alabama for fetal endangerment, right? They can't get out of prison because the custodial system has determined they're a danger to their babies. Women Brittany Pulop locked up in Oklahoma for a, a miscarriage that the state determined was because of drug abuse. So now we're actually looking around at a country where women are going to be locked up. And that same kind of chanting that seemed rhetorical and kind of mean-spirited and sexist is now moved from a threat to an actual state of affairs. And so I think what I wanted to think about when I use it throughout the book is how, again, how quickly that happened, right? I mean, it was, a, it was annoying in 2016, but it didn't feel genuine. And now I think it feels, oh, that could happen to me or someone I know. And when they say lock her up, they really do mean, you know, that somebody is going to overhear a woman in Texas talking about a sketchy miscarriage and telling the police and that's she's going to go to jail. And so I think maybe, again, I wanted to a little bit use it as a meditation on that double-edged sword of the law as something that can make you free and something that can make you unfree and also use it as a way to think about when law becomes lawless, the object isn't to give up on the law, right? The institution, the legal system, it's to say, no, this has now become lawless. And that I think is a thing that, you know, when I, I was trying to think through, am I ready to give all this up and just, you know, do like watercolor because clearly the law... That's always my pick too, watercolor. Watercolor? It's baking Why? water... Well, because it's so soothing. It's so soothing yeah. because you just, yeah, watch but I, it. But, you know, I don't know that watercolor makes us free and I do think that like the law itself can. And so when I ask myself am I ready to give up and walk away? It's really important to say, no, actually, this is lawless. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash amicus plus to access all Slate's content and to support our work. It's just $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash amicus plus.